One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The sun is shining and it is a beautiful day out there. Today we will do our very best to keep your mood optimistic, free from worry and generally filled with good things. Today, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's time to take the gloom and doom out of the world and bring the happiness to the fore. Whatever you have been thinking about, I want you now to concentrate on the things that make you happy, the people that raise your spirits and the elements of the world that are all good rather than all bad. There's enough misery out there, ladies and gentlemen. There's enough ghastly stuff out there. If you want to concentrate on that, be my guest. But what I would suggest to you is that you will feel an awful lot better if you don't do that. And instead, if you look forward to what is going to be great uh, about this week. With that in mind, we're also preparing you for this afternoon's pending announcement that we will be moving ever closer to opening bars and restaurants, limiting the social distancing figure to one metre rather than two, and getting busy socialising with some of the people we haven't seen for weeks and weeks and weeks. I've already been talking to friends of mine about possibly meeting up for dinner, possibly meeting up for lunch, possibly meeting up for drinks. Now, I know that many of you out there will be desperately sad uh, because you haven't seen your loved ones. You'll be desperately disappointed because you haven't been able to see maybe your grandchildren, you haven't been able to go to funerals, you haven't been able to go to weddings, you haven't been able to have weddings uh, and you know, listening to a bunch of middle class idiots in London saying, oh we'd really like to have lunch, I know that that may not exactly be your first priority, however what I want you to think about uh, is that that eases life in general for everybody and if you can't actually go out and meet people for lunch or for dinner you can still go out and meet people and you can be more uh, shall we say social with them 0344 499 1000 coming up we are going to be celebrating the four year anniversary of the Brexit referendum with former MEP Alexandra Phillips we'll get some top tips for saving money with Gemma Godfrey from the Times and we'll find out from psychologist Joe Hemmings why taking the bins out might well lead to more romance in the bedroom don't tell me that that's not what you're really looking for. 0344 499 1000. And if you're hearing this, you have moved with us to our new home on DAB+. Welcome. And don't forget, we are live streaming the show on YouTube as well, so you can watch us as well as listening. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. 
Now, one of the things that's very, very, very good about listening to Talk Radio is that we are, in fact, now being accused quite readily and quite openly uh, of being the only radio station that is actually in tune with the people of this country. We are not the people uh, who are pretending that something bad is not happening. We are not the people who are trying to sell you uh, some version of politics which is actually not real. What we are about is about telling you the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And with that in mind, let us go straight away to Henry Hill, Assistant Editor at Conservative home to find out from him uh, whether he's feeling as optimistic as I am. Henry, very good morning to you. Good morning. Now, the sun's shining, the sky's blue. You know, we're going to be told that uh, one metre is going to be a good enough distance to keep away from people so you can go back to the pub, you can go back to the restaurant. Uh, Surely this is a matter of great rejoicing, isn't it? I mean, you'd hope so. I certainly am. I think, um, you know, it's quite easy to so you get sort of used to lockdown in one sense, you know, you, you adapt, you get used to working from home and everything else. You have your daily walks and your social distance tinnies in the park or whatever it is. It's a bit like being going back to being 16. Yeah. But I think the prospect for me, the prospect of not only restaurants and bars reopening, which is obviously great, but also the gym mm. and swimming pool, other places like that. And all of those places that just used to be part of day-to-day life. I think it'll just make it so much easier because of course, some things are going to have to stay shut for a while, you know, things like nightclubs and so on, and, and other really high-risk venues are going to be closed for ages. So I think yeah. it's important to remember that we're not entirely out of the woods, and there may be in the winter a second a second wave, if you like, because that's what pandemics have done before. But I think that's only all the more reason to sort of seize the day while we can. If it's the case that we can have a summer where everything's open before we have to maybe shut things down again, let's embrace it. Let's get them open and let's get out there and have some fun while we can. Well, exactly right. And also, let's not forget that the hospitality industry in and of itself is massively important to the economy of this country, massively important to tourism. Now, one of the things that I'm told quite regularly by friends of mine who have been coming into London uh, of, over the last couple of weeks because they now feel as if they can it's still quite sort of quiet in the center of town like places like covent garden where uh, tourism is a massive thing where theaters of course are not open at, at the moment and that's still pretty quiet you know trains coming into the city are still pretty quiet so we haven't quite made that leap but surely if this announcement is what we think it's going to be this afternoon by boris johnson uh, that will start happening well it will be interesting actually to see whether or the, we, we change the way that we, we go out in sort of COVID conditions because, of course, it might be people who want to go and meet friends at a restaurant or a bar, nonetheless don't want to, you know, use lots of public transport, in which case they might try and go out much closer to them. I know that one the aspect of lockdown for me is I, me and my flatmate moved to a part of London literally the weekend before lockdown kicked in. And as a result, we haven't been able to really go anywhere. And so we've been exploring the area. And so we're really familiar with our local patch. And we might be much more likely to go out somewhere local than we would have been pre-lockdown. So it might take longer for places in central London to recover, depending on what people's appetite for risk is. Yes, exactly right. And I mean, I suppose it's too difficult to predict at this moment in time, Henry, but can you imagine um, hotels opening up at some point soon um, with these kind of conditions? I mean, I know, for example, uh, in places like Dubai, in places like Florida, the, the hotels are open uh, and have been for some time. And, and it's not particularly difficult for them to do that business, um, whereby um, if you're outside, say, at a beach club or something like that, you can actually um, you know, be, be given drink, you can be given given food uh, you can also if you're in the hotel get room service rather than going to the restaurant you know buffets are out of the question but you know it feels to me like we really need to get our tourism business back absolutely it's a, it's a hugely important sector of the economy um, and one that you know lose it. it it can be really hard to replace because of course once if those businesses go under 
then you miss one or two crucial seasons, and then all of a sudden people's travel habits have changed, and mm. it can be quite hard to fight your way back from that. So it's definitely the case. You know, businesses, they need to know when they can reopen. Um, I think sometimes there's, there's this impression that the government is trying to spring some of this stuff on us as a nice surprise. Businesses can't really work like that. They need to be given a clear signal when they can reopen and support to adapt their business model. But you're right, hotels and so on, apart from the cafe, which I'm not entirely sure that many people will mourn, to be honest, um, is a business model that is perfectly possible to adapt to social distancing. You know, regular cleaning, some hand sanitizer um, and some spacing, and, you, and you're absolutely fine. So we do need to get that open. You know, it's all very well establishing these air corridors so that we can go on foreign holidays again, and that's great. But we need to make sure we don't end up neglecting uh, our domestic tourism industry here at home, because it, especially because so many rural co- coastal communities depend on it uh, disproportionately. Well, exactly right. I mean, funnily enough, yesterday we were talking to some uh, callers from Wales who were saying that, you know, here in Wales we don't feel as if we're any longer part of the United Kingdom, thanks to the Welsh Assembly. Similarly in Scotland, which bo- both of which countries really, really do depend far more than we do on tourism. You know, they are struggling because basically what m- many people have, uh, in the north of Scotland have said, you know, we don't want tourists coming here because they'll basically bring the virus. Um, you know, they may not recover from that if they don't change that policy. Well, I, I think in, in both places, you've basically got a tension between the, the economic reality, which is a lot of their business model is based on tourism and, and being part of the United Kingdom, and then the fact that um, a, a number of them, obviously I don't think a majority in either country, a number of them are sort of mildly, at least, xenophobic nationalists. Mm. I mean, especially in the Welsh press, you know, there's been some really ugly headlines. The Western Mail had this... Wales says go back to England mm. time, which you know would not have been out of place in some kind of far right bag. Yeah, really. Um, and, and, and that's a, and that's a, and it's going to be it's going to be a source of tension because you're, you know there's only so long that the Welsh government, especially, can can afford to prop up the Welsh tourism sector. And, and you've seen though there have been huge scenes where when Britain when England opened up earlier, hundreds, you know, thousands of Welsh people piling over the bridges to come and spend their money in England. That a knock on effect on the Welsh economy as mm. well. So I said, you know, COVID has exposed the real tension created by the amount of power that we've given to the devolved administration. And the government, in some ways, has a responsibility not only to make sure that we have an effective UK-wide response, but that, you know, the devolved governments, whatever their powers, should not have the right to torpedo the economies of Wales and Scotland, especially if we, the British taxpayer, are then going to be expected to step up and pick up... No, I think you're absolutely right. I think it was a massive error by Tony Blair's administration uh, to give um, a secret sort of, you know, guidance and governance to Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales on the basis that it would basically shut down nationalism, which, of course, it didn't. It, It merely amplified it. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's one of the great miscalculations of twentieth century politics. But it was, it, but people could see it coming, right? I mean, it was a very simple gamble by Labour. Basically, they assumed if they established these parliaments or assemblies, then they would continue to vote for Labour forever, and they would. And whilst at the same time, of course, because they didn't solve the, the famous West Lothian question, which is the fact that you know you had MPs from Wales and Scotland voting on policies for England, which they couldn't affect in Scotland because they were devolved. You know, they never resolved that either. It was a deeply cynical and unstable constitutional move, which has, which has destabilised this country quite badly. And it's finished off the Labour Party really once and for all in terms of getting into government because without the Scottish MPs that they used to have uh, and they now don't have and they're never going to get back, they could never be in government. Precisely. And, they were, and it's not quite happened yet. They do run the same danger in Wales, of course, because currently they're kind of the dominant party. In Wales. Yeah. But they've only done that by becoming extremely nationalist. You yes. know, they're basically trying to outplied plight. So there's no, there's, no, there's no guarantee that at some point, you know, when they have a bad, which a bad time, which they will eventually, plight won't run off with their voters. 
so it's 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 done them huge damage. But you know, I'm not going to be particularly mourn damage to the Labour Party, but it has also done huge damage to the integrity of the United Kingdom, and that I think is a problem for all of us. Yes, absolutely right. Speaking of which, how do you think the government is doing at the moment? Because there have been lots of questions asked. I would say in the last two weeks, I have been uh, one of those asking them because up until two weeks ago, I would have said, "Listen, I'm right behind Boris Johnson. I think that the government's got a very difficult job to do. Uh, they're doing the best that they can." However, it seems at the moment um, that they've slightly lost their mojo. This afternoon, uh, Bojo has a chance to get the mojo back. Uh, will he do it? I mean, he's, he, he, if there's one thing you say about Boris Johnson, it's that he's a good performer. I think the fact that you know they're teeing us up with all this Super Saturday stuff about reopening pubs and hotels and the rest of it is an attempt back in the nation's good books. Uh, they have... Yeah, obviously they're, they're due some sympathy because no, none of them were elected in December expecting to have to fight a massive pandemic and to work out how to apply some quite complicated and draconian public health restrictions. Mm. But yeah, they, they have, they, there is a sense, there is a sense that they've sort of lost at least control of the, of the narrative. You know, there's this idea that we went into lockdown too late when in fact it appears that, Boris, that, that Cummings might have been trying to get into lockdown before the scientists were yeah. able to do it and all of that. We're only really going to know how they've performed when, when there's the inevitable inquiry. Uh, because so much of it will be secret and, you know, behind the scenes. But I think that, yeah, the government, at a time like this, when you need the, you need to command confidence because you need the public to be following the rules, uh, I think the government, the damage sustained by government because, over the Dominic Cummings row has, has been, has, they've not yet ready, they've not yet righted the ship from that, right? They, they've not yet won back the respect from people who were following the rules. And then, and obviously now they've been, you know, with the Black Lives Matter protest as well. You know, there's been this complaint about, you know, the police not taking sufficient action to protect public property, differential treatment of different sorts of protests, you know, people being arrested at, uh, at entirely peaceful anti-lockdown protests, you know, mostly peaceful BLM protests were allowed to go in. So I think that generally speaking, the only way that things like lockdown work and are sustainable is if they are viewed to be applied equally to everybody. And I think that over the last few weeks, the government has allowed this idea that they're not really enforcing it properly mm. and the exemptions. And that's a really, really dangerous uh, impression to give. Yes, I mean, I think they've been very deft, actually, up until, as I say, a couple of weeks ago, at kind of making sure that people do the right thing while not necessarily being instructed to do so, if you know what I mean. You know, it's been quite subtle in the way that they've made people's behaviour change. But I think now is the time when, in a way, it's actually easier to make decisions and to make uh, prognostications and to tell people to do certain things because it's not about life and death anymore, it seems to me, and it's more now about the economy. Yeah, I think that's true. I think the, 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 the flip side for the government, of course, is that it's very easy to, to, to sort of give the public guidance when you're talking about one universal and quite sort of strict policy yeah. to stay at home. I think it gets much more complicated to try and maintain the necessary sort of distancing when you're doing stuff, when, when you're like, well, this business can open, but only, only in this way with these restrictions and that business can open, and that suddenly gets very complicated. And you do risk a general sort of collapse of lockdown, I think the big one that they're going to have to deal with is the you know young people who are not at really risk from this disease um, face sectors that particularly cater to them. I'm thinking things like nightclubs and festivals mm. being closed for ages, right? Because there's no socially there's no socially distanced way that you can run a nightclub or a festival. But we've already seen in Manchester a couple of weeks ago that young people aren't just going to sit and wait, you know wait, wait out a year or two of the prime partying years of their lives. They're going to start going to illegal stuff. And I've got serious concerns that if the government doesn't do more 
to really tap, take a greater grip on the problem faced them by the nightlife industry, we might end up be, with it being run by gangsters. In a yes, yes, I think with illegal too. raves and all of that, because people, as we have seen in the last few weeks, will do what they want to do. Uh, if they're told they can't do it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, the one thing I can say that I'm pleased about, though, uh, is that this weekend would have been Glastonbury, uh, and so I'm delighted uh, to see that all of those kind of, uh, what can only be described as woke uh, West Londoners aren't able to go staggering about with their very expensive Wellington boots shouting, oh, Jeremy Corbyn and watching Jon Snow uh, abuse the Tories? Oh, I mean, I, my, my policy is that you leave everyone to their fun. It would have been Glastonbury's, would have been Glastonbury's 50th. I know a few of my friends were going to make it their last ever Glastonbury. Yeah. Would they, you know, then you move on to older people's festivals. But, uh, I mean, I'm sure it'll come back. But, you're, but you're, I think you, there's a serious point under all of this, which is, you know, it's sad to lose the official festival scene and everything else. But the problem is that, you know, the people putting on the illegal stuff, some of them are, some of them are just hobbyists and amateurs and yeah. can be harmless. But other ones are organized crime, right? Yeah. They use these events to sell drugs. Um, and then the danger is that if the government forces clubs to stay closed for, you know, up to a year, potentially, mm. if there's a winter outbreak, and hundreds or thousands of them go bust, which is what the industry is warning could happen, yeah. who's going to be best placed to buy up those vacant venues? It's going to be the gangsters from the illegal parties. And yeah. so in a couple of years, if the government's not careful, you could end up with an entire... And this is one of those second-order problems that I think sometimes gets missed in the front and the top, in, let's deal with the virus. You could end up with a whole sector of the economy going back to being run by um, organised crime. Yes, it's a very good point, Henry, one that hasn't been made before, which is very unusual in this day and age because normally speaking, uh, people just go on about the same old stuff. One final question to you. What are you hearing about a reshuffle? What are you hearing about Gavin Williamson possibly losing his position as a, a, a Secretary of State for Education? Uh, what's going on? Well, I think the reshuffle is most inevitable and indeed overdue because, of course, they would, they, what was remarkable is that there wasn't a bigger one after the general election, really. Yeah. Because normally what happens is, you know, a new prime minister comes in and is like, bang, right, let's get this going, let's hit the ground. And people forget it now because, of, you know, COVID came in, but there was a slight sense of drift in the early days of the Boris Johnson administration because he was just elected on a Brexit mandate, right? There wasn't much of a domestic agenda. And I think the problem for the, for the prime minister now is that, right, he's got his Brexit cabinet, but more to life than that now and so he needs to he needs to bring in more talent he needs to he needs to redistribute it i probably at all surprised if Gavin Williamson ended up moving on because of course you know fighting the blob if you remember it feels like a lifetime ago now if you remember at the start of this of conservative period in office 2010 to 2014 fighting the blob and you know reforming education and getting schools out of the hands of the left was meant to be one of the great missions of this conservative mm. government and Dominic, Dominic Cummings was in charge of it as, as Michael Gove's fad yeah. and since then they've completely lost grip on that and we're seeing the consequence now when the government just can't get schools open and mm. it's going to hugely damage a generation of young people so I think you know it seems inevitable that it, it, unless Gab Williamson can get a grip on schools he'll be one of the people who get shifted out uh, and, and that'll be a, and, and, and you know I think some new talent would be would be a welcome a welcome opportunity to reset this government's agenda yes I think you're absolutely right Henry great to talk to you thank you very much indeed Henry Hill uh, associate editor assistant editor rather at Conservative Home talking a great deal of sense particularly uh, about the nightclub business my good friend Donald McLeod who runs nightclubs in Scotland uh, has been banging on about this for a long time that they need to be able to have some form uh, of opening uh, pressure put on the government both in Scotland and in London as well so that the gangsters do not end up running all of the nightclubs the gangsters do not end up running all of the raves all of the festivals all of the illegal gatherings because of course we know it's illegal to gather in groups of more than six you'll be arrested won't you no you won't as long as you're holding a placard you'll be absolutely fine the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio
Let's talk now, though, to Nick Freeman, criminal defence lawyer, author and commentator, uh, a man also known occasionally as Mr Loophole. Uh, very good morning to you, Nick. Good morning, Mike. Now, you are a man of great sense, uh, as uh, we often talk about various uh, scenarios regarding the criminal law, uh, regarding traffic policing, regarding all sorts of things. Um, you've got involved in, uh, in the, the opening of pubs. Why have you done that? Well, it, to me, it seems a, a sensible idea that the, the pubs have been closed for a long time, as we know. Yeah. They're, they're about to open. Um, and we, as you said, I think um, Prime Minister Johnson is going to reduce the two-metre rule to one-metre rule. So that the, the pubs need to play catch-up. Um, they've obviously lost a lot of money. They've had some government support, but probably not as much as they would like. And, and what, what the pubs want to do is they want to try and utilise outdoor space. Mm. And, of course, outdoor space is limited. Um, and I thought, well, what, what better place, what better, what better idea to use the car parks? That, that increases the space massively. And yes. it also it, it, it sends out a, a message, a bit like the old click adverts for the seatbelts. Yeah. But actually, you should be disconnecting your car and drinking and driving. Um, we're, we're at the moment, as I talk to you, we're, we're at the highest drink drive death rate, the highest death um, drink drive serious injury rate mm. in the past eight years. Um, Why do you lockdown, think that is? Uh, l- lack of police. Mm. Um, people, people are prepared to take a chance. Um, lack of education. I mean, as you know, we've got the highest drink drive um, limit in, of any EU country. So at the, the level that the government says is acceptable, you're four times more likely to have an accident. Right. So I thought, well, if you basically utilise car parks wherever possible and say, we're going to create more outdoor space. If we, if we have one metre social distancing, and let's assume that's going to happen, yeah. we can't have people queuing inside. We can't have people waiting at the bar. That's not... We've, we've got to try and protect ourselves, guard, guard the nation's mm. health as well as the nation's profit. I thought, why not utilise car parks um, and get to pubs by, by foot or by local transport or by taxi or, if necessary, by by pedal cycle mm. of course, not encouraging people to drink and cycle so you, you're, <laughs> no you're you wouldn't want to do that of, no you they certainly wouldn't want to do that so what i'm talking about you know we used to refer to pubs as our local mm. um and, and maybe we should start moving back towards that 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 time so people wouldn't need to travel vast distances sure certainly pro tem during these very strange times so people would would go to their local pub they would you know but the very essence is they're local they wouldn't need to travel very far and the pubs will be able to utilize space which you know it's very difficult for for certain public houses to get planning permission to put tables on pavements outside some councils are resisting that quite strongly they can do it with the car parks they've had three months now to work out they've been waiting for this day they've been trying to work out how they're going to recoup their lost profit and this automatically creates space um, so they can prepare food, people can eat and drink outside in, in a car park space. It's space that's there, it's available to those pubs who have it. Uh, and it, at the same time, it sends a strong message out. It's very visible, don't drink and drive. You yes. know, it's like sealing off a car park, It's not, cars are no longer welcome. And it's sending a very strong message, in my view, to people who are tempted to drink and drive, 
don't do it because it's incredibly dangerous. No, I get that. And I'm not just saying this, Nick, but actually I was talking about using car parks like this uh, a few weeks ago because it seemed to me that, you know, if you are going to have difficulty uh, finding enough space inside it, two metres, even at that you could find space in a car park. But isn't the problem with a lot of these pubs which have big car parks that they are uh, they are like that because they are sort of quite a long way away from what you might regard as populated areas and civilization. So the only place, the only way you can get to a lot of pubs is by car. Well, yeah, yes, that that's true. Um, for certain pubs, look, there's there's no magic solution here. There's, there is no magic solution, unfortunately. It's going to ser- suit certain pubs. It's not going to su- suit others. Um, I, I did say to you, you know, that pubs used to be referred to as the local uh, and pubs tend to be set up in an area where there is a local community. Uh, and I, I'm sure that people in that community where the pub is would want to support the pub. And that's why possibly, you know, everything is changing. There's a, there's a new normal, isn't there? A new norm. Uh, well, that's what people keep telling me, but I refuse to accept the new normal. I prefer the old normal, and that's where I'm heading. Well, we, we might prefer it, but I'm not sure. Certainly in the short term, we're going to go back there. You know, are, are we going to be shaking hands? Are we going to be embracing people? Or are we going to be wary for quite a long time? You know, when you look at football matches with no supporters, you you know, look at all the sports events that are cancelled. Think that th- this isn't something that's here for a few minutes. This is going to be with us for a long time. Well, it might be, Nick, but let's, let's, let me put it to you this way. You know, we've only been in this situation since March, effectively. Yep. In fact, since yep. the end of March, right? That's Correct. really only about three to four months ago, Correct. right? Yep. Now, you and I have been alive quite a long time on this earth, me probably slightly longer than you. Um, you know, it's a very so, small right? portion. So. It's a very small portion of our, of our time on this earth, right? Now, I believe very firmly that by the autumn and probably certainly by the end of this year, we might be having a conversation, you and I, about somebody being done for uh, drunk driving or speeding, uh, and we'll have forgotten all about this. And we'll go, do you remember when we had that coronavirus? I'd, I'd, love, I'd love to agree with you, but I don't. I think we're going to have a second spike because I think what's happening is we, we relax. We, we want to get back to, to, to how it was before. We want to go back to the status quo. And we're going to have this virus isn't going away, is it? It, it, it might go, go quiet for a little while and then it's going to come back with a vengeance. And we're going to have a second spike. spike. Hopefully the NHS now are well-equipped to deal with it. We, we know a lot more about the virus now. So I don't think we're going to have another lockdown. But I think a lot of people are very concerned about their health, particularly people in, in our age group and above mm. who don't enjoy the best of health. And I think a lot of people are going to be wary for a long time. That's my view. I don't think they're just going to jump back in and let's have parties, this and that, and ignore it. I think certainly for a year at least, mm. people are going to be very Well, I think, I, I think the reason I say what I say, Nick, is because I believe, as, as evidence seems to be showing in other parts of the world, that the, the virus kind of moves through the country rather like a, a hurricane and I, I've probably bored everybody to death listening to my analogy about a hurricane but a hurricane hits the the, 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 uh, the land basically coming off the sea particularly in North America and it weakens and as it goes yeah. across the land uh, it weakens even more and it becomes a tropical storm then it becomes nothing at all so I think that's what we're kind of seeing and so I believe and I have no uh, medical background and I have no training and I have no uh, wish to try and pretend that I know any more than other people do I just feel as though uh, 
um, certainly in London, the southeast of England, um, it seems as though there are very few new cases. Uh, there is very little activity in some other countries like Italy and Spain and Germany. Um, they've had a little spike in Germany because of one yep. particular outbreak, because of one particular type of working, uh, which tends to be, um, you know, very poor people coming from another country, living together, working together, sleeping in, in very crowded conditions. You know what I mean? It seems as though we're, yep. we're, we're not in the same place we were in, say, April, where everybody was terrified. I think your analogy of a hurricane is a good one. And, of course, hurricanes, they do come back, don't they? They, they go do. Away, they disappear. Well, we've had viruses back. every year, probably for the best part of the last hundred years. We, we have indeed. Um, this this one is completely unknown. And, uh, you know, we're, we're told what it does to us. And we don't know whether that's actually correct. You know, it's a learning process. But I think certainly there are many people who are genuinely frightened by by catching it. They don't want to catch it, and I think they're going to be very wary. Yeah. Uh, and I, all I'm saying is, certainly for six months to a year, I think people are going to be very careful. Um, and, of course, the, you know, employers, people who provide pubs, they have a legal responsibility. They have to comply with the law. So if the law is changed and it's going to be one metre social distancing, that, that is potentially going to save one million jobs in the hospitality industry. But for that to work, they, they need to make some money and they need space. They need outdoor capacity. So, you know, I, I can't think of, you know, how, you know, there's nothing perfect, but how do you create space? Well, there's a car park. Mm. And the beauty of a car park, it is space. And actually, it's a disconnect with, with, with cars, isn't it? Yes. Thinking and driving, um, particularly when you look at work at the highest level for eight years of death and serious injury. It, it's a very useful reminder don't drink and drive, but also what about supporting the local community? Pubs don't just set up in the middle of nowhere. They always set up where there's a community. And, and what I'm saying is the new norm is that community will now support in the short term that pub. People maybe will think, I'm not actually going to drive 20 miles to a pub because they serve nice food. I'm going to support the local pub, um, particularly if pubs adopt. I know um, from from my inquiries, that pubs are looking to create space, and and it's yes. very difficult for them. And um, the only way they can overcome that is, as I say, by trying to be use, using their imagination, imagination, being creative, and saying, "Well, car parks are ideal, or part of the car parks." But you know, if you imagine people basically walk to pubs or they cycle to pubs, there's massive extra space, mm. and 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 you can stay outside. We're, we're in the summer. I think this is going to be good summer weather-wise. Um, they can put a top over it, you know. And I know there's, there's some expense involved, but they need to start creating some profit, don't they? They need to yes. start creating. Well, well, the other thought it's, I've it's got: how about how about how about this for 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 an add-on for you? Because a lot of pubs, as well, are, are places where you get food. Um, if they're struggling to think about perhaps where they can produce that food because the kitchen is relatively small and they can't get that many people in, not only could you have people drinking in the car park, you could have a barbecue. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I was thinking of drinking and eating in the bar, uh, in, in the car. Yeah. Having, having tables there um, and, you know, you, because you're not going to want to sit. You're not going to be able to socially distance inside a pub at a table. Mm. It, they're, they're, you're not going to get anyone in, in, in real terms. Well, you can do that in a bubble, presumably, can't you? You can have four people who are from the same household at a table. Yeah, it, but it, it, yeah, you can. But it's, the, the, the pub's got to ensure it complies with the law. Yeah. Um, the onus is on the pub. Uh, and I imagine they're going to be very strict about it because, the, 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 you know, there's potential civil actions here. You know, if they go to a pub and the landlord's not sure people of social distances, 
distance and someone gets COVID-19, you know, there could be civil litigation. They'll involved. be ringing you. They'll be going, you know, there must be some <laughs> compensation I can get here. <laughs> I, I'm not that sort of lawyer, Mike, I'm afraid. No, no, I, I realise that. But you're right. I mean, people will be signing all sorts of disclaimers. You'll be asked to yeah. fill out a form. I mean, we've already been told by Matt Hancock that you might have to register with some pub or other in order for you to go there. Uh, and you yeah. might have to order your drinks ahead of time in order for yeah. you not to have to actually and, handle cash. And your food. And your food. I mean, yeah. it, it, it's happening in fish and chips shops. If you want fish and chips, you know, I had fish and chips the other Saturday night. Fantastic. You have to phone in advance, five days in advance, to yeah. visit because they're so busy. Their capacity was 400 fish and chips on a Saturday night. It's now 100. Mm. Um, you know, it, it will ease. But so people have got, you know, that's why I say I don't think we're going to rush back to the, the old times. I think we're going to, may, maybe gradually we will, but certainly for the next six months to a year, I think we're going to have to adapt new techniques, be creative, uh, and just try and make things work. And, um, you know, where do you create space? You've got, you know, this is a a very simple way of creating space, particularly in the summertime. And we, we try and see what happens. Yes. Well, let's see what happens and let's hope, uh, Nick, the next time you and I speak, uh, we will have been to a pub in a car park or not. We will have had fish and chips and we will all be a much happier uh, little group of people. Nick Freeman, criminal defence lawyer, Mr. Loophole, wants to have pub car parks utilised more fully. I actually said this some weeks ago. And of course, as you would expect, we are already ahead of the curve here uh, at the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Uh, I've already been to several pubs around here uh, where they are serving drinks to take away. You have to go and sit in a park and drink it. But it's actually an incredibly sort of life fulfilling um, mission because it makes you feel like you are doing something that you used to do. You're not actually sitting in the pub, but you are doing something. You're mixing with people, you're talking to your friends, you're drinking with them, and it doesn't have to involve, you know, uh, you getting completely and utterly, uh, completely and utterly bladdered. What it means is, is that you can have a drink or two and you can go home. And it's very pleasant, and particularly this weather. And I think this week, people will be doing it en masse. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 
Johnson. We've been talking, of course, uh, in the first instance about um, Boris Johnson and the change in plans uh, for moving us down from two metres distancing to one metre. Surely what this will mean is not only a good news for the leisure industry, not only good news for uh, the uh, hospitality industry, but good news surely for schools as well, because surely what it will mean uh, is that schools can then go back to uh, putting more children in the classroom. They can go back to um, having less trouble in terms of uh, uh, social distancing, two metres instead of one metre. Uh, and the teachers surely at some point or other will have to admit that, yes, we can go back to work. Because at the moment, the only impediment to most school children going back to, to school is the teachers who are saying, oh, we don't feel it's safe. If the government is saying it's safe, and we heard in the first hour of this show from a Tory MP himself shielding because, of course, uh, he's got some kind of lung condition that he says uh, he has to worry about. Uh, basically, Philip Dunn said, we will be told by the end of July that actually we can stop shielding. Now, that to me means that the government is going to be clear on this and the government is going to say it's no longer dangerous to go out because of COVID-19. So, if that's what the case is, then surely we can open everything up, can't we? I think we've now got Alex Phillips back. Let's try again. Alex, hi, very good afternoon to you. Hey, good afternoon. How are you doing? Very well indeed. Sorry about that. Uh, I don't know what happened there. You had obviously been, I thought you'd been kidnapped or something by the Russians, but, you know, there wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be a new experience for you. Tell us about uh, the fourth anniversary of the Brexit referendum. How are you celebrating it? Uh, I'm not really. I'm seeing here I've got a broken foot, so I'll sunbathe in my garden and feel sorry for myself. But, you know, fourth anniversary of the vote, maybe, but nothing's changed yet. And I think that's a that's a pretty poor indictment of politics for the modern age, isn't it? That four years later, we're still paying in. We're still under EU rules and regulations. And we still don't know what our future relationship's going to look like. Yes. Well, I mean, you've really made me feel uh, depressed now. I mean, here I was trying to be all happy and upbeat about it. And now you're telling me that actually I should be uh, incredibly sort of dismal about it but I mean to be fair it did take three and a half of those four years to actually get to a point where we could get a government that could enact what the people wanted yeah, it did. But, you know, the risk is what actually happened was Theresa May drew up this abhorrent deal that Boris Johnson himself called vassalage. The EU essentially wanted to take that to the bank and say, you know, I'm going to cash that in. The UK is going to essentially be a satellite state. Um, when Boris Johnson became leader, he was so desperate to unlock that logjam in Parliament. He needed to demonstrate that he had made progress with the EU. He needed to say, look, I've got this brand new deal. We're going to get this through Parliament and vote for us. And this whole quagmire that we've got stuck in is going to disappear. But what he did really is just put the same deal in a different package. So now the EU wants to go and bank that again. Um, and it's got all sorts of things that we really don't want to be tied into via the new protocol for Northern Ireland. There's um, future customs arrangements. There's coming under state aid regulation and a whole lot of, of other stuff that we actually don't even know the detail of yet. Um, and so, you know, we're sort of a lot further down the line now, but I'm not particularly confident that we're going to end up with the full fat freedom that I think most members of the public uh, hopes that we would. Yes, and I know that you've been writing in the Telegraph and, and, and elsewhere about this kind of thing, and you've been talking to the, uh, to, to the newspapers about this. But, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, it does seem to me that Michel Barnier uh, has changed his tune to some extent, that Europe and Brussels in particular is no longer speaking to us as though we are the recalcitrant child that needs to be controlled. They're speaking to us now with a sort of newfound respect. Do you not, do you not share that view? I don't think there was ever a lack of respect, particularly from, from the Belgian side of things, from, from Brussels, um, from the EU 27. But I think that there was a whole frustration while we have these, um, you know, 
battle, battles going on in Parliament, especially. At least they know they're dealing with a majority now. But you've got to listen closely to what Michel Barnier is saying. And you'll notice that again and again, he talks up, uh, talks up the political declaration. Now, what that is, is this appendage, it's about 25 pages long. It's this appendage that Boris Johnson added on to the withdrawal agreement and took out all the nasty stuff from the withdrawal agreement, stuck it in the political declaration and said, this isn't legally binding. But it ties into the original withdrawal agreement, which is now international treaty, that statute in UK law. Um, it ties in under this uh, paragraph, which explains best endeavours. So we have to show we're using best endeavours to make sure that the political declaration is fulfilled. Legally, that feels a bit wishy-washy and there's a very different continental view um, as to what that would uh, infer. But I think that this is a, going to be a long-run battle. And Michel Barnier is a very, very clever negotiator. From the beginning, he had our backs against the ropes. You know, he had a very useful apparatchik with, with Ollie Robbins, who was the previous negotiator before Sir David Frost, um, who himself is an EU federalist. So they managed to extract everything they wanted out of the UK early doors. And now they're really wanting to cash that in. And I don't, we, we don't have enough detail about what's going on in those meetings and how firm we're going to be able to stand quite quite frankly. No, I get that. But I mean, on the other hand, we are in the midst, I guess, of a, uh, of a pandemic. It's not been, uh, I suppose, Boris Johnson's uh, best choice. I mean, I don't think if you'd ask Boris in, in January, how would you like things to play out for the first six months of the year? And he wouldn't have said, well, what we'd like to do is see this pandemic uh, engulfing the entire world, which will mean we'll have to shut down the economy in the middle of March uh, and then not wake up from it until maybe the end of September. So, I mean, in a way, it's quite remarkable that any negotiations been going on at all, isn't it? Well, yeah, and, you know, the rumour has it that uh, Michel Barnier was the one who gave uh, Boris Johnson uh, COVID-19. But, uh, you know, I'm not oh, going to really? comment on that. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was, apparently that, that was a little sort of deal that they the did ultimate, in a negotiation. Uh, the ultimate parting gift. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they, they exchanged some viral particles. At yeah. least we've traded something. Um, but uh, no, I mean, look, the, you could actually say that the pandemic's worked in our favour because what the pandemic has shown is that we're able to adapt very quickly to a crisis. It's also shown that we have a great global dependency on getting certain things, whether it's PPE being manufactured, mm. whether it's access to medicines, whether it's access to reagents to make antibody tests, um, and the necessity to live in a global marketplace. And we're now faced with an EU, which is going to face its own huge looming debt crisis. When you look at the nations of the EU that the most hardest, hardest hit by the pandemic and went into absolute lockdown you're looking at italy and spain and those two countries have the highest debt to gdp ratio so they're going to end up with another single currency crisis and i don't think there are many nations in the eu who are looking at the negotiations with brexit and thinking at this stage in time it'd be a good idea if they suddenly lost access to our markets and vice mm. versa so that could actually help us out a little bit but you know don't, I don't think we should look at the fact that we've had this crisis um, as, as any sort of thing that should stall negotiations. I mean, look, we're talking on Zoom right now. Yeah, I'm not a big fan. I'm looking forward to being able to come back into studios. But the negotiations have been hard at work this entire time. And they, one could argue, actually, there's been fewer distractions and there's been fewer press concentration. I mean, perhaps one blessing is normally, um, if there hadn't been a pandemic, the newspapers would be absolutely tearing apart every single aspect of the, those, those negotiations. Mm. There'd be leaks, there'd be mischief. You'd have Michel Barnier writing to his favourite Remainer pen pals in the Palace of Westminster. So I think it's taken a little bit of stress and duress off those talks, the fact that they haven't been in the limelight. 
Yes, I think that's right. But equally, I mean, we are still, I think, in a much better position, surely, are we not, Alex, than we were, say, uh, a year ago, certainly than we were two years ago, because that whole process, the four years that we've had to sit through uh, and, and wonder about, and, you know, I remember going back to as far away as, like, October of last year. Do you remember when we all went, went into work on a Saturday? Uh, because before Oliver Letwin screwed everything up, it was meant to be the day that something was going to happen. You know, and we sat there hours and hours and hours on end uh, where nothing actually happened and so I, I take your point and, and I understand why you are shall we say skeptical about what's going on but we are surely in a much better position to negotiate now than we have ever been and and as you say with the way that the EU has has become sort of defunded if you like because there is so little money around from the from the contributing countries they are they're not going to want to give us a hard time they are not going to want to see trade between us and the EU in some way becoming you know more detrimental than it is now are they no well they're not going to um defunded is interesting they're far from that they've actually been drawing on resources left right and center including from us actually mm. um to to pay these pandemic payouts to the worst affected economies and it's still not clear look even though we said we're not extending the transition period, there's still time for that to happen, um, realistically. And we don't know what the shape of that future deal is going to be yet. And it could run all the way up to the 11th of, uh, hour, and it could be the UK who ends up capitulating. You're already seeing moves afoot in Westminster and reading little you know, snippets of leaks and gossip from the corridors of power that there might be manoeuvres in place to try and dethrone Boris Johnson. We had the whole Ferrari, remember, over Dominic Cummings, which I think a lot of those in the know who exist within the Westminster bubble very clearly read as an effort once again to remove what people think is the linchpin of these negotiations, the person who's really going to put his foot down and push for a hard Brexit, remove him from any position of power or influence. Perhaps, you know, that that's an overestimation of the sort of influence that Dominic Cummings yields. But it's very clear that behind the scenes, you've still got the same efforts taking place. You've still got characters in the Labour Party and the SNP, the Liberal Democrats, who will do anything they can, use any might they can, and any legal persuasion they can to try and get their own way and water down Brexit and dilute it. And what I'm concerned about is where we're not really looking at the devil in the detail yet with that political declaration, there is this very, very tricky hook, this very, very tricky loophole that EU can use to say the UK has not used best endeavours to fulfil the promises they made in that political declaration during negotiations. Um, but a lot of this is still to play for and we're just not hearing much detail. No. And would you expect... An coming weeks to learn more about what it is that they're doing? I mean, we've been told by Boris Johnson that he expects a deal to have been done sort of by the end of the summer, by which I take to mean the end of August. Um, I'm not quite sure if that's nebulous or not. Um, but I mean, you know, surely we should be able to implore Boris and the negotiators that if they're going uh, to Brussels and not getting what they want, then we should just have no deal at all, shouldn't we? Well, no deal planning is gone. It's basically being stopped. So I don't really feel like that's on the cards anymore, which is a shame because I think that if you're going to get a quickie deal in the same way that Boris Johnson said, you know, I've been negotiating, Theresa may have been chatting away in, with Brussels for two years and hadn't really sort of, you know, produced anything that anybody in Parliament found acceptable from either side of the debate. Boris Johnson took about two weeks, came back waving a bit of paper and said, look, I've got it, isn't this fantastic? Well, quite frankly, a few full stops were moved around. Yeah. And so what concerns me the most is if we're going to secure a super fast 
Bastille by summer, which, you know, Boris Johnson loves saying, look, wham, bam, haven't I done something spectacular? Haven't I pulled another rabbit out of another hat? You think, well, for the EU to go down that route and say, yes, fine, we'll let ink dry on this. It's going to be something that's in their, on their terms. It's going to be what's in that political declaration. So before you start, you know, popping champagne on the four day anniversary, there's a long way to go. We're nowhere near out of the woods yet. All we've managed to do so far is sign a really dreadful divorce bill into, into international treaty, which keeps us on the hook for a whole load of things forthcoming. And we haven't even decided what we're going to do. We're one foot in, one foot out at the moment. Yes, technically on paper, we have left. But that is basically just, you know, technically on paper. In every other way, shape or form during this transition period, we're a paid up member state. And we don't know what we are transitioning to. And that's the way the EU staged these negotiations quite deliberately um, to get their money from us, to tie us into, you know, a, a sort of ramshackle uh, set of ambitious promises and then say, right, the clock's ticking and now this has got to be fulfilled. And I'm afraid, you know, we've been jumping through their hoops. And my fear is trying to rush something through to state the general public and say, haven't I achieved this spectacular goal could end up actually being an own goal. Yeah. Um, well, it doesn't take much for me to uh, have an excuse to open a bottle of champagne. It has to be said, Alex. But are you worried as well about the likes of Ed Davey uh, and people like him who keep continually standing up in the House of Commons and saying, oh, but, you know, surely we should have an extension because we have still to negotiate things uh, which might take longer than a few weeks and we really need to uh, prolong this whole kind of process. I mean, I'm hoping that nobody will give that any credence at all. But, but is there a chance that that could uh, get some traction? There's always a chance for everything. And um, the EU's the, the master of rewriting rules last minute to suit their own uh, purposes. Um, Ed Davies about as scary as an aphid, but what is scary is the legal opportunities here to challenge whatever Boris Johnson comes back with. And like I said, Michel Barnier is already writing to people on the Remain side and you know filling them in on details. Look, it wasn't that long ago that we had the multiple letter saga when Boris had to ask for an extension to avoid crashing out because it had gone through the courts and so on and so forth and he wrote two letters to Donald Tusk one saying you know I've been forced to send this letter and one being the letter itself and um, again it was just using spin and smoke and mirrors to try and be the good guy but actually capitulating to what the Remain, Remain side wanted because it had been won legally and that's the danger here despite all of the you know pomp and, and, and the bluster of Johnson what legally is he beholden to? Yes, quite. Finally, Alex, because we're running out of time, uh, you must have one great memory from the last four years. What is it? One great memory for the past four years. What is this since? Um, is this since the actual vote? I think my yeah. my greatest memory is not having a memory um, on the twenty fourth because I was at a very good party on uh, on the results night. So there you are. OK, so you don't remember what happened. You're thereby absolving yourself of all guilt. Very well played. Alex Phillips, thank you very much indeed. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now we're going to talk to Vanessa O'Brien, who's an explorer and mountaineer. Now, this is our homeschooling section, of course, uh, which we do uh, after the news every day uh, around about 12.30. We're a little bit early today because Boris Johnson is speaking uh, in the chamber uh, about the two-metre rule. So uh, my apologies if you're not prepared and you haven't got the kids around the radio. Do it now uh, because this is how they learn to be explorers. Vanessa, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. It's a great uh, description to have as, as your kind of, you know, your caption, isn't it? Explorer and mountaineer. You know, I'm very jealous. It's something I always want to put underneath my name, but unfortunately I can't say that. But uh, how do you become an explorer? Tell us that first of all. 
Well, I think uh, it starts with having some curiosity and an interest in the world. Um, those are two ingredients that are always good to have. Right. And, um, and really just uh, taking those two ingredients and um, finding something else that interests you, like mountains and oceans or the environment yeah. and you know, putting those things to use. And there's a lot of applications today that um, you know, uh, make citizens of science. So you can find something, uh, take a picture of it and identify it and um, you know, capture it and it'll locate where you are and what it is. Mm. And is it something that you can begin to do at quite a young age? Because there's some children, obviously, listening to our homeschooling section. We we try and get parents to give them uh, their children a, a chance to listen to the radio um, and give them a few ideas about where they can go with their lives and what they can do with their lives. And I think if you're, as a parent, as I am, um, uh, keen on, on showing your children new experiences, taking them to interesting places, they develop a kind of curiosity for it, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that the, the, the main message is try to get outdoors mm. as much as you can. Um, you know, I know we're in it, you know, especially with COVID and other things, we're, we're stuck indoors. But if you can get outdoors, even for a little bit um, and, and create the sense of wonder, you know, look at the trees. What kind of tree is it? How are they different? Look at the things on, on the ground, you know, even even the insects and the, and the different types of of insects they all play a role in in the environment the birds what kind of birds are they um you know really trying to create curiosity in, in what's around us and and having children identify those things mm. um you know it's it's such a great experience and it does start at a young age just um in everything from walkabouts going out um you know uh even um, I know when I was young, my, my uh, father used to take me fishing. He used to take me um, even hunting. Not that we uh, always agree with that, but, you know, just just, you know, really going outdoors and, you know, experiencing nature um, and and even with sports, ice skating or, um, yeah. you know, any of the winter sports skiing, things like that. Just taking an appreciation for, for being outdoors and how much fun we can have. For sure. I think as long as you're eating what you're hunting as well, by the way, I don't think there's any <laughs> reason to be ashamed. I think as long as you're not sort of mass culling uh, members of the uh, animal population. But what about the kind of the funding of it? And as you as you do it now uh, uh, as a grown up, as it were, um, is that tough to do? Do you always have to be kind of looking for something scientific? Do you always have to have um, a, a project uh, to do? Well, I think it depends. I mean, um, there's an, there's a, a little bit of a difference between um, adventure and exploration. So I, I think uh, for, for myself now, I, I it, it's moved beyond adventure for me and more into exploration. So if I go somewhere um, like a tall mountain or uh, a deep ocean, I really want to participate in something that gives back. Mm. So tall mountains these days they have glaciers we need to understand more why the glaciers are melting and boots on the ground are a good place to do that so i like to go and take samples and and find out what's in the glaciers um, a lot of times there's um some of the fallout from different events that have taken place because we're one planet so you can see that there's uh you'll find uh radiation from fukushima that happened in japan and in, in the himalayas but you don't know that until you take oh, wow. a sample yeah yeah it just goes up in the westerlies and 21 days later it, it falls in the tibetan plateau um likewise in the oceans you know uh, only eight uh 20 percent 
uh, leaving 80% unmapped of our seabeds. So only 20% of our seabeds mm. are actually uh, mapped. And we know more about the surface of Mars and the moon than we do about our own sea floors. Uh, so it's important if you're going to be down, you know, that deep to really be sure to, uh, you know, measure as much as you can with sonar and photography. Yeah. Well, I tell people about the Mariana Trench and how there could be um, sort of sea snails down there the size of a Cadillac. And people laugh at me. But it's true. I mean, there could be things there that we don't even know about. Um, there are absolutely some interesting creatures down there because it's, you know, it's pure dark. And um, if it's if it's 100 percent darkness, why do you need eyes? Well, indeed. Um, so you would need other things. You'd need, um, you know, uh, cilia or something to feel uh, your way around. Uh, you need other things to uh, identify prey and other ways to, uh, you know, uh, survive. Mm. So those things need to be studied for sure. And the pressure is so great. You cannot understand really eight tons of pressure. I, you know, I read an article that said 292 jumbo jets. And I said, well, you know, somebody, one person can't imagine one jumbo jet on you, much less 292. Right. So, you know, the fact that you say more than one is, is slightly irrelevant, but it's just the pressure is so great. Finally, we just we're, we're, we're just about out of time, Vanessa, I'm afraid. Yeah. But just one final question. Is there one kind of exploration um, endeavor that you haven't done yet that you would like to do? Uh, you know, I, I think there's some. Uh, I, I think I would like to try to find uh, something uh, maybe like a Shackleton ship or something mm. like that. Yes, because uh, I think that would bring, um, you know, uh, something to a new generation, maybe uh, because Shackleton was such a great leader um, and that would bring uh, some inspiration to a new generation. Fantastic stuff. Well, Vanessa, thank you so much. I hope you've inspired some young minds. I'm sure you have. Uh, I think it's a great thing to get out there, as you say, and explore uh, the wilds of uh, either the mountains or the, the lakes or the woods or the, the seas. It's all fantastic stuff. And if you're uh, listening to this and you are homeschooling, uh, I think the first thing you should do this afternoon is take the children out somewhere uh, and let them explore and see what they can find. It's a great thing. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We are awaiting the arrival of Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, into the House of Commons, where he's going to be explaining why we think uh, he's going to be explaining why the two metre social distancing rule uh, will be going down to one metre. Uh, that's what we're expecting to do. Because Boris Johnson. To the families and friends of James Furlong, Joe Ritchie Bennett, and David Wales, who were brutally killed in Reading on Saturday. To assault defenceless people in a park is not simply an act of wickedness, but abject cowardice. And we will never yield to those who would seek to destroy our way of life. Mr Speaker, with permission, I will update the House on the next steps in our plan to rebuild our economy and reopen our society, while waging our struggle against COVID-19. From the outset, we have trusted in the common sense and perseverance of the British people, and their response has more than justified our faith. Since I set out our plan on the 11th of May, we have been clear that our cautious relaxation of the guidance is entirely conditional on our continued defeat of the virus. In the first half of May, nearly 69,000 people tested positive for COVID-19 across the UK. By the first half of June, 
that total had fallen by nearly 70% to just under 22,000. The number of new infections is now declining by between 2 and 4% every day. Four weeks ago, an average of one in 400 people in the community in England had COVID-19. In the first half of June, this figure was one in 1,700. We created a human shield around the NHS, and in turn, our doctors and nurses have protected us. And together, we have saved our hospitals from being overwhelmed. On the 11th of May, 1,073 people were admitted to hospital in England, Wales and Northern Ireland with COVID-19. By the 20th of June, this had fallen by 74% to 283. This pandemic has inflicted permanent scars and we mourn everyone we have lost. Measured by a seven-day rolling average, the number of daily deaths peaked at 943 on the 14th of April. On the 11th of May, it was 476. And yesterday, the rolling average stood at 130. We've ordered over 2.2 billion items of protective equipment from UK-based manufacturers, many of whose production lines have been called into being to serve this new demand. And yesterday we conducted or posted 139,659 tests, bringing the total to over 8 million. And while we remain vigilant, we do not believe there is currently, currently a risk of a second peak of infections that might overwhelm the NHS. Taking everything together, we continue to meet our five tests and the chief medical officers of all four home nations have downgraded the UK's COVID alert level from four to three, meaning we no longer face a virus spreading exponentially, though it remains in general circulation. The administrations in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland hold responsibility for their own lockdown restrictions and they will respond to the united view of the chief medical officers at their own pace based on their own judgment but all parts of the uk are now traveling in the same direction and we will continue to work together to ensure that everyone in our country gets the support they need thanks to our progress we can now go further and safely ease the lockdown in England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At every stage, caution will remain our watchword. And each step will be conditional and reversible. Mr Speaker, given the significant fall in the prevalence of the virus, we can change the two-metre social distancing rule from the 4th of July. I know this rule effectively makes life impossible for large parts of our economy, even without other restrictions. For example, it prevents all but a fraction of our hospitality industry from operating. That's why almost two weeks ago I asked our experts to conduct a review 
and I will place a summary of their conclusions in the libraries of both houses this week. Where it is possible to keep two metres apart, people should. But where it is not, we will advise people to keep a social distance of one metre plus, meaning they should remain one metre apart while taking mitigations to reduce the risk of transmission. And we are today publishing guidance on how business can reduce the risk by taking certain steps to protect workers and customers. And these include, for instance, avoiding face-to-face seating by changing office layouts, reducing the number of people in enclosed spaces, improving ventilation, using protective screens and face coverings, closing non-essential social spaces, providing hand sanitizer, changing shift patterns so that staff uh, work in set teams. And of course we already mandate face coverings on public transport. While the experts cannot give a precise assessment of how much the risk is reduced, they judge these mitigations would make one metre plus broadly equivalent to the risk at two metres if those mitigations are fully implemented. So either will be acceptable and our guidance will change accordingly. And this vital change enables the next stage of our plan to ease the lockdown. And Mr Speaker, I'm acutely conscious that people will ask legitimate questions about why certain activities are allowed and others are not. And I I must ask the House to understand that the, the virus has no interest in these debates. Its only interest, its only ambition is to exploit any opportunities to recapture ground that we might carelessly vacate and to reinfect our communities. And so there is only one certainty. The fewer social contacts you have, the safer you will be. And my duty, our duty as the government, is to guide the British people, balancing our overriding aim of controlling the virus against our natural desire to bring back normal life. We cannot lift all the restrictions at once, so we have to make difficult judgments. And every step is scrupulously weighed against the evidence. Our principle is to trust the British public to use their common sense in the full knowledge of the risks, remembering that the more we open up, the more vigilant we will need to be. From now on, we will ask people to follow guidance on social contact instead of legislation. In that spirit, we advise, we advise that from the 4th of July, two households of any size should be able to meet in any setting inside or out. That does not mean they must always be the same two households. It will be possible, for instance, to meet one set of grandparents one weekend, the others the following weekend. But we are not, we are not recommending meetings of multiple households indoors because of the risks of creating greater chains of transmission. 
Outside, the guidance remains that people from several households can meet in groups of up to six, and it follows that two households can also meet regardless of size. Mr Speaker, I can tell the House that we will also reopen restaurants and pubs. Hallelujah. What did I say? What did I tell you, right? You just have to listen to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. I started off the show this morning with a, clari- a clarion call, if you like, uh, for uh, good fortune, uh, for good cheer, uh, for happiness and for looking forward to a better time. And guess what? I've been proved right yet again because Boris Johnson has basically just lifted the lockdown. That's what he's done. Make no mistake. Never mind about all the caution. Never mind about his, you know, worry that we might reverse it all. The pubs are going to open. The restaurants are going to open. From midnight tonight, hairdressers are going to open. You can go and stay in a hotel. You can get in a tent. You can mix with people from another house. Doesn't matter how many people there are. You can go indoors with them. You can spend the night with them. This is it. We are on the way, ladies and gentlemen, uh, to where we want to be. And I, for one, salute Boris Johnson for making this happen. Well done, Boris. Well done, everybody. Thank you very much indeed. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We are awaiting the arrival of Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, into the House of Commons, where he's going to be explaining why we think uh, he's going to be explaining why the two metre social distancing rule uh, will be going down to one metre. Uh, that's what we're expecting to do. Because Boris Johnson. To the families and friends of James Furlong, Joe Ritchie Bennett, and David Wales, who were brutally killed in Reading on Saturday. To assault defenceless people in a park is not simply an act of wickedness but abject cowardice, and we will never yield to those who would seek to destroy our way of life. Mr Speaker, with permission, I will update the House on the next steps in our plan to rebuild our economy and reopen our society, while waging our struggle against COVID-19. From the outset, we have trusted in the common sense and perseverance of the British people, and their response has more than justified our faith. Since I set out our plan on the 11th of May, we have been clear that our cautious relaxation of the guidance is entirely conditional on our continued defeat of the virus. In the first half of May, nearly 69,000 people tested positive for COVID-19 across the UK. By the first half of June, that total had fallen by nearly 70% to just under 22,000. The number of new infections is now declining by between 2 and 4% every day. Four weeks ago, an average of 1 in 400 people in the community in England had COVID-19. In the first half of June, this figure was 1 in 1,700. We created a human shield around the NHS, and in turn, our doctors and nurses have protected us. And together, we have saved our hospitals from being overwhelmed. On the 11th of May, 1,073 people were admitted to hospital in England, Wales and Northern Ireland with COVID-19. By the 20th of June, this had fallen 
by 74% to 283. This pandemic has inflicted permanent scars and we mourn everyone we have lost. Measured by a seven-day rolling average, the number of daily deaths peaked at 943 on the 14th of April. On the 11th of May, it was 476. And yesterday, the rolling average stood at 130. We've ordered over 2.2 billion items of protective equipment from UK-based manufacturers, many of whose production lines have been called into being to serve this new demand. And yesterday we conducted or posted 139,659 tests, bringing the total to over 8 million. And while we remain vigilant, we do not believe there is currently, currently a risk of a second peak of infections that might overwhelm the NHS. Taking everything together, we continue to meet our five tests and the chief medical officers of all four home nations have downgraded the UK's COVID alert level from four to three, meaning we no longer face a virus spreading exponentially though it remains in general circulation. The administrations in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland hold responsibility for their own lockdown restrictions and they will respond to the united view of the chief medical officers at their own pace based on their own judgment. But all parts of the UK are now travelling in the same direction and we will continue to work together to ensure that everyone in our country gets the support they need. Thanks to our progress, we can now go further and safely ease the lockdown in England. At every stage, caution will remain our watchword. And each step will be conditional and reversible. Mr Speaker, given the significant fall in the prevalence of the virus, we can change the two-metre social distancing rule from the 4th of July. I know this rule effectively makes life impossible for large parts of our economy, even without other restrictions. For example, it prevents all but a fraction of our hospitality industry from operating. That's why almost two weeks ago I asked our experts to conduct a review and I will place a summary of their conclusions in the libraries of both houses this week. Where it is possible to keep two metres apart, people should. But where it is not, we will advise people to keep a social distance of one metre plus, meaning they should remain one metre apart while taking mitigations to reduce the risk of transmission. And we are today publishing guidance on how business can reduce the risk by taking certain steps to protect workers and customers. And these include, for instance, avoiding face-to-face -face seating by changing office layouts, reducing the number of people in enclosed spaces, improving ventilation, using protective screens and face coverings, closing non-essential social spaces, providing hand sanitizer, changing 
shift patterns so that staff uh, work in set teams. And of course, we already mandate face coverings on public transport. While the experts cannot give a precise assessment of how much the risk is reduced, they judge these mitigations would make one metre plus broadly equivalent to the risk at two metres if those mitigations are fully implemented. So either will be acceptable and our guidance will change accordingly. And this vital change enables the next stage of our plan to ease the lockdown. And Mr Speaker, I'm acutely conscious that people will ask legitimate questions about why certain activities are allowed and others are not. And I, I must ask the House to understand that the, the virus has no interest in these debates. Its only interest, its only ambition is to exploit any opportunities to recapture ground that we might carelessly vacate and to reinfect our communities. And so there is only one certainty. The fewer social contacts you have, the safer you will be. And my duty, our duty as the government, is to guide the British people, balancing our overriding aim of controlling the virus against our natural desire to bring back normal life. We cannot lift all the restrictions at once. So we have to make difficult judgments. And every step is scrupulously weighed against the evidence. Our principle is to trust the British public to use their common sense in the full knowledge of the risks, remembering that the more we open up, the more vigilant we will need to be. From now on, we will ask people to follow guidance on social contact instead of legislation. In that spirit, we advise, we advise that from the 4th of July, two households of any size should be able to meet in any setting inside or out. That does not mean they must always be the same two households. It will be possible, for instance, to meet one set of grandparents one weekend, the others the following weekend. But we are not, we are not recommending meetings of multiple households indoors because of the risks of creating greater chains of transmission. Outside, the guidance remains that people from several households can meet in groups of up to six, and it follows that two households can also meet regardless of size. Mr Speaker, I can tell the House that we will also reopen restaurants and pubs. Hallelujah. What did I say? What did I tell you, right? You just have to listen to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. I started off the show this morning with a, clar a clarion call, if you like, uh, for uh, good fortune, uh, for good cheer, uh, for happiness and for looking forward to a better time. And guess what? I've been proved right yet again, because Boris Johnson has basically just lifted the lockdown. That's what he's done. Make no mistake.
Never mind about all the caution. Never mind about his, you know, worry that we might reverse it all. The pubs are going to open. The restaurants are going to open. Hairdressers are going to open. You can go and stay in a hotel. You can get in a tent. You can mix with people from another house. Doesn't matter how many people there are. You can go indoors with them. You can spend the night with them. This is it. We are on the way, ladies and gentlemen, uh, to where we want to be. And I, for one, salute Boris Johnson for making this happen. Well done, Boris. Well done, everybody. Thank you very much indeed. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.